In chapter 3 of Genesis, I'm going to be reading verses 1 through 9, but we will um, we'll also be considering the contents of some of the other verses as well in this chapter. The Word of God tells us, Now the serpent was more cunning than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Has God indeed said, You shall not eat of every fruit of the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God has said, You shall not eat it, nor shall you touch it, lest you die. Then the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows that in the day you eat of it, your eyes will be opened. And you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was pleasant to the eyes, and a tree desirable to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. She also gave to her husband with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves coverings. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Then the Lord God called to Adam and said to him, Where are you? In the passage that David read for us this morning, the psalmist asked the question, What is man? In his... His question is in consideration of man's uniqueness among creation and man's significance within creation. And he cries out, what is man that you, God, are mindful of him? The Greek text that most of our translations um, quote uh, there in, in uh, in Psalm 8 tells us that man is, has been made just lower than the angelos, the angels. But the Hebrew text, the one that the psalmist actually penned, says, you have made him a little lower than Elohim. You have made him just a little lower than God. The psalmist's perplexity is that we, fallen men, have been created just beneath God himself. We are the highest of all creation. We have been bestowed with the glory of God. And look what we've done. What is so significant about us? If if we're able to step into a world like ours and behave as we do, if if we're able to cause such greatness and yet such pain, how can that be? God has made us to be just a little lower than himself. Which makes the fall here in Genesis chapter 3 even that much more tragic. Think of it. Adam and Eve having been made in God's image, having been placed in a perfect garden, having been given all of the opportunities of life and joy and happiness and peace do the one thing that God says, don't do it. 
the question that comes to my mind is, what is it that convinces Eve to take the fruit? I had a, um, I had a uh, professor in, in, uh, in college, one of my theology professors, who said, um, you know, we always tip, well, we typically associate the fruit with an apple for whatever reason, even though the scriptures doesn't say that it was an apple. The only fruit that it does mention is uh, the, pear, or the, uh, the, the fig, and they take the, uh, the fig leaves and weave them together. But uh, he said, he said, the problem in the garden was not so much the apple in the tree as it was the pear on the ground. Ah, oh, terrible. <laughs> that is bad. <laughs> but what is it that convinces Eve to take the fruit? What is it that convinces Eve? It, notice what, what begins to, to happen in her dialogue with the serpent. I think what convinces her starts first as simple self-interest. She steps into dialogue with the serpent, the serpent having initiated it. He says, well, no, God hasn't said that we can't eat any of the trees. In fact, he's, he's given us all the trees except for the one tree. And the serpent begins to take her down that road from self-interest to suspicion. Why is it that God would, would tell me not to eat that fruit? Doesn't God want what's best for me? But why would God not want me to eat that? And her trust in God becomes mistrust. She begins to trust the serpent. Wait a minute. The serpent here is looking out for my interests, just as I am. And that trust that has become mistrust becomes distrust. Suddenly, God's holding out on me. Why doesn't he want me to know what this good and evil is? Why is it that he's put this tree here and he's told me I can't eat it? In fact, she says, I can't even touch it. And as the serpent walks her down that road of self-interest, what does she do? She grasps. Says, this is mine. I can take it. And I can eat it. What then causes Adam to do the same? It's funny because we, we hear the dialogue between Eve and the serpent. And presumably Adam's not right there. Maybe he was. We don't know. It doesn't explicitly tell us. But we know that Eve is talking with this serpent. And the serpent's carrying her down this road of self-interest to the point that she ultimately grasps that which God says no And then she hands the fruit to Adam and he says, okay, and he takes a bite. It seems very odd, very peculiar. I have a, a suspicion that Adam is being controlled by the same sort of thing. He is being controlled by self-interest and he grasps because his wife has grasped. His love is no longer about the other, his love is about what is mine. He sees his wife has stepped off into this world of darkness and he says, she's mine and I will go with her. And so, in this simple account, 
of Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden taking fruit that God has forbid them to take, you find the fountain of our world's sin. Paul says that in Adam, we all sinned. In Adam, we all died. In Adam, we all took of that which God had told us not to take. And yet God puts the tree in the garden. We might think it's kind of unfair. You know, why in the world would God put that temptation in the garden? And, you know, ultimately our answers to those type of questions will not ever be satisfactory to ourselves. Because we're always going to say, why this world? Why a world in which there's a fall? Why a world in which, you know, we can do so much good and yet do so much evil? Why a world like this? Why a world, what we're asking is, why a world with such freedom? Because the fact is that God in creating people who are free, creating rational, intelligent beings, creating beings who are capable of genuinely loving Him, He creates also beings who are freely capable of not loving Him. Because love necessitates freedom. Love that is not grounded upon freedom is not love. It is coercion and manipulation in robotism, if you will allow me to coin a phrase or coin a word. But in this passage, in Genesis 3, we read of the fall, and we read of this couple that had been made in God's image, this couple that had been made to bear the likeness of God. This couple that had been made to love one another and to love God, to find in Him and in one another the very source of their joy and happiness. And you read of these who have been made just lower than God Himself. We read that they have fallen and that they have entered a world of both good and evil, of both light and darkness, of both joy and pain. As we consider this text, I want to consider three things with you. The first thing I want to consider is the tragic exchange of fortune that Adam and Eve make. And you see this tragic exchange of fortune in the response that they make and the response that God makes to them with the fall. Notice what happens. Notice the things that they exchange. Notice their fortunes that they forfeit and those that they then inherit as they forfeit those other fortunes. The first thing we find is that they exchange their love for God with a fear of judgment, an irrational fear of judgment. God comes to meet with them, presumably as was, as, as, uh, was His custom. And as God comes to meet, they hear His footsteps, and what do they do? They hide. 
They hide in fear. They hide knowing there's something wrong. Knowing that they have disobeyed Him. Knowing now that they are naked. They hide in fear of judgment. Because God is approaching. They exchange also their innocence for foolishness. The text specifically tells us before Genesis 3 that they were naked and unashamed. Now they recognize they're naked and what do they do? They take fig leaves and they try to weave them together to cover themselves up as if God's not going to know they're naked. They've gone from being innocent to being foolish. They exchange also their fellowship and harmony with with God, with themselves, with one another, and with all of creation for division and enmity. Notice um, Notice what happens as God approaches them and says, What have you done? In verse 11 of chapter 3, we read, And he, that is God, said, Who told you that you were naked? Because they tell him, We heard your your voice in the garden, and we were afraid, so we hid ourselves. Have you eaten from the tree of which I commanded that you should not eat? And the man said, The woman whom you have given to me, she gave me of the tree, and I ate. And the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you've done? And the woman said, The serpent deceived me and I ate. Notice what's happening. Nobody's to blame here. Nobody has has any responsibility to share because no one's willing to share any of it. Adam goes so far as to say it's his wife who's caused it. And not only that, you gave her to me. So you've caused it, God. And when God then turns to Eve, what have you done? What do you have to say for yourself? You can imagine little children as something catastrophic has happened. And you're saying, all right, who who did what here? It was him. And and you invited him over. He turns to the woman, what have you done? And she says, the serpent that you've put in here. He tempted me. He deceived me. And I fell for it. And so, no longer is there fellowship and harmony. Instead, there's division and enmity. Adam's enemy is his wife because she's brought this upon upon him. And his enemy is also God because God put her in his life. And now look what's happened. Now look what I've done because of what you've done. They exchange... Other orientation, which is the basis of genuine biblical love. We call it agape love. It is a love that is focused upon the beloved. It is not focused upon self. It is not self-interested. It is not loving you because of what you can do for me. It is loving you because of the value that you have. And they exchange this other orientation for self-centeredness. Now, Eve is a means by which Adam can find happiness. And if Eve can't bring Adam happiness, then she's to blame and she's to be cast off. 
they exchange their outpouring love for God for this idea that God is to make them happy. Notice their their orientation in life has has dramatically shifted. It was uh, St. Augustine and Martin Luther who who, uh, used the phrase cor in curvatus, I'd say a heart curved in on itself. It's like a vacuum. It used to be other oriented. It used to be outpouring. It used to be self-giving and now it is self-consumed and self-centered. And they exchange also their security for estrangement. The life that they knew, a life of comfort, a life of ease, a life in a garden that God Himself had planted, that life is now gone. In their judgment, God cast them out of the garden. And they have become estranged. You see that estrangement even as they hide from God in fear, not love. You find that estrangement. They in their souls, in their very depths, have become estranged from God. And they don't know Him like they did. You find in this text not just a tragic exchange of fortune, but you find also an ironic turn of events. And it's related to the image of God in them. Notice what the serpent says to Eve in his deception. He says, number one, God's holding out on you because number two, He knows that as soon as you eat of it, you're going to become like Him. And so the voice to which Eve listens is saying, you'll be like God. The voice she should have been listening to says, ahem, you already are Eve. You've been made in His image. The voice she listens to says, God doesn't want you to be like Himself. The voice she should have been listening to, the voice of conscience, the voice of God's whisper in her heart was, are you crazy? He created you in His very image. And so the serpent says to Eve, you'll become like God if you eat that fruit. And when she takes that fruit, what does she do? But she becomes increasingly unlike God. God's image in her, God's image in Adam is immediately marred and changed. They become self-consumed. They become blame-shifting. They become foolish and arrogant. They become as unlike God as you could tragically imagine them to be. Notice that sin always promises self-empowerment. Sin is supposed to make you happy. It's supposed to give you strength. It's supposed to enable you and empower you to live for yourself and do what pleases you. Sin always promises self-empowerment, but what it invariably delivers is self-enslavement. Paul said that it's in sin that we can't do what we 
wish we could do and find that we do end up doing what we really just don't want to do. We become enslaved. Sin will always enslave us. In this tragic change of fortune, in this ironic turn of events, you find, surprisingly, a gracious act of judgment. And it's related to the tree that's in the midst. Not the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, but the tree of life. Notice that God pronounces judgment upon all parties involved. He pronounces judgment on Adam, on Eve, on the serpent, and even on the land. You find that judgment in verses 14 through 19. He's pronouncing judgment, and in pronouncing judgment, he does something graciously for them. He provides tunics of animal hides. They have been covering themselves in fig leaves, and what does God do? He produces animal skin. Atonement is always bloody business. Think about what has just happened in chapter 2. God has created all the animals. God has created this garden. God has created Adam in his image. And what does God do? God brings the animals to Adam to be named. And in response to Adam's fall, one of those animals lost its life. One of those animals that Adam has just named has now been sacrificed so that Adam can be covered. Atonement is always bloody business. And we think of God's banishment of Adam and Eve from the garden as being something horrendous. And why in the world would God do that? And man, that's a bad judgment, but notice what the text tells us. In fact, um, look at verse 22 of chapter 3, and then let's read on for a bit. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us. You can imagine the Father speaking to the Son to know good and evil, and now, lest he should lest he should put out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him out of the garden of Eden to till the ground from which he was taken. So he drove out the man and he placed cherubim at the east of the garden of Eden and a flaming sword which turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. God's banishment from the garden was not a horrendous and heartless act of judgment. It was gracious. God knew man has fallen. And what now if he takes of the tree of life? What now if being unredeemed, he goes on to live forever? The scriptures promise us that that tree of life will be seen yet again. Not in a garden of Eden, but beside the rivers of water in heaven. And that the trees placed there and its fruit hangs low, and its fruit is for the healing of the nations. God's 
judgment is always redemptive. That is the whole story of the Old Testament. We think of the Old Testament as God being vengeful and angry and spiteful and he's manipulative and he's conniving and he's always you know, throwing lightning down on people and bringing judgment on people. But God's judgment is always directed toward redemption. God always brings judgment in order to redeem his people. In fact, God's anger that we see is the anger of love when it sees the beloved being in danger. The medieval church used the Latin phrase of Felix culpa to describe the, God's response to the fall of Adam. It means, oh, happy fault. Even in man's tragic sin, even in this tragic fall, God brings grace. And God provides for us something even greater than what was originally intended. God makes us his sons and daughters, not just his creatures. So the prophets would declare, oh, how the mighty have fallen. And the psalmist would cry out, what is man that God himself is mindful of him? And the scriptures tell us that man is he who has been created in God's image. And he who has fallen from that image and he who God wishes to restore in that image. The scriptures call us to a life in which we trust God yet again. We speak of faith. We speak of belief in Jesus. We speak of trusting in him. We speak of asking him into our hearts. We speak of giving him our lives. And in speaking of all of that, what we're speaking of is trusting him yet again. Trusting him not as Eve did, self-centeredly looking for the best of her options, but trusting him at his word. He asks us to give him our hearts and we have to trust him enough to place them in his hands. He asks us to give him our lives and we have to trust him enough to say, they're yours. And this morning, as you look at the back of your communication cards, I wonder if your prayer would be to trust God with your well-being. Knowing that he provides for you more than you can provide for yourself better than you can provide for yourself. We live in a world of grabbing. We live in a world that grasps. 
We live among people who think if you're going to make it, go out and grab it. Get it. And the scriptures call us to trust God with our lives, to trust Him for our well-being. And I wonder if you would pray to trust Him. To provide for you, to meet your needs. To place in your life those things which will bring true joy and happiness and peace. And you can't do that without the second thing I'm asking you to commit to. And that is to spend time with Him daily. It is exceedingly difficult to trust God when we're just not spending time with Him. Because you can't trust someone you haven't gotten to know and you can't get to know someone without spending time with them. And of course, by spending time with Him daily, I'm thinking of the same things you're thinking of. Reading the Scriptures, spending time in prayer, talking about Him with friends, talking about Him within the family. And lastly, I wonder if there would be anyone who would say, I need to ask Him to redeem me. Because not only have I not trusted Him with my well-being, I have not given Him my life. I've not given Him my heart. I've not asked Him to come into my life, come into my heart to save me and to redeem me. And if so, I wonder if you would be honest enough before God to, to admit that and to ask Him to come into your life to redeem you. We were made in God's image. And we were made to trust Him. take Him at His word and to live in love for Him and one another. Let's pray.